So um, my, my kids, we're in John 17, by the way, John 17, verse 6, as we continue in the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Uh, my kids are both grown now, and so while I'll never not be their dad, and there will always be that stress of you know, wanting good things and worried about it, bad things, I've at least gotten to the point in life where they understand me and, and my wife. They understand what we're trying to accomplish they're not fighting against us for the most part, and that's a blessing because that's one of the hardest parts about parenting, in my mind, is for so much of their lives while they live at home, you feel like you're fighting with them instead of working alongside them. Uh, that they don't, when they're little, they can't tell you what's going on, and they, you can't reason with them because they can't understand. And when they get older, they don't think you know anything, right? When, when they're teenagers, they think you're the dumbest person on earth. And so you have this, this long period of time where they don't trust you like they should. So when they're little, for instance, and you want them when they're sick, and you have, you have to force them to take this vile medicine or swallow these horse pills or, oh my goodness, worst of all, go to the doctor and get a shot. Well, how could you love me if you make me do this terrible thing? And we're trying to get them to understand, this is for your good. We want you to get well. We want you to feel better. I know it doesn't make sense, but to do this bad thing will, be, will make good things happen. And then later on, as they go to school and they can't understand why they have to do all this homework. I mean, every night it's 25 math problems and 50 vocabulary words and, and three papers and... And, and I just want to play video games or watch TV or play with my dog. And, and you have to force them to do those things because you want them to be equipped for life. And then later on, you're telling them, okay, I'll get you a phone, but you have to give it to me at night when you go to bed. Well, none of my friends' parents make them do that. They get to just text and, and chat all night long. And, well, I'm sorry, that's just not the way it's going to be. Well, then you hate me. Right? You don't want me to have any friends. You don't want me to be part of these conversations. No, actually, I love you, and I know the kinds of things that can happen if you're too addicted to this little device. And then later on, they find somebody, and they fall in love, and you have to tell them, no, you, this person is not good for you. You can't see this person anymore. Oh, you really hate them then. But no, you're an adult, and you remember. You remember how uh, just falling in love with someone, you... you you, give, you hand over so much power to them. They can do you terrible harm. And let's just face it, most people, even a lot of people who grew up to be fine upstanding adults, they're not equipped for that kind of responsibility when they're teenagers. And so you're doing this for their good. They can't see that, though. If only they would understand what we're trying to accomplish in their lives. We're not trying to make their lives less fun. We're trying to get them through these tumultuous years and healthy things and get them ready to get a job, to raise a family, to be happy, to be able to pay bills, all those things that lead to a good life. If only they would see that and work alongside us, then childhood would be so much easier. Parenting would be so much easier. This isn't really, John 17, about parenting, but I bring all that up because... In the same way, our lives as Christians would be a lot more peaceful and it would make a lot more sense if we understood what God was trying to accomplish in us. So much of the time, we as Christians are fighting with God, trying to get God to do what we want Him to do and not wanting to do what He wants us to do. Although we would never say that out loud. 
So I think it's important to look at it from that framework because as Jesus gets ready to be arrested, crucified, he's already shared some of the most important teachings in the entire Gospels with his disciples on this last night of his life. Now he's praying. Now he's praying before they head across the Kidron Valley into the Garden of Gethsemane. What we call the high priestly prayer, last week we saw him pray for himself. Today, he's going to pray for his disciples. So let's look at verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So this is how I know, at this point, Jesus is transitioning and he's starting to pray now for the 11, the, the 11 remaining disciples, and, and because he says, the ones you gave me. And it reveals what Jesus' heart is for them. And I think by transference, we can say, he has the same desires for us. The same things he wanted for them, the same things he prayed for for them, are what he's trying to accomplish in our lives. And before I tell you what those two things are, I want to point something out. If you read the Gospels, or if you just sit through enough sermons, you know how many times the disciples failed during Jesus' earthly life. You know how many times they got it wrong, how many times they ran away, how many times they were confused or said the wrong thing. And so it ought to be encouraging to you and me that in his prayer to the Father, Jesus says, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. They have believed that you sent them. He doesn't say, you gave them to me, and Father, they have been a chore. My goodness, I would be so glad to get rid of these 11 people. And that ought to encourage us, because I think there's a certain segment of Christians, not all Christians, maybe not even most, there's a certain segment of Christians that are so aware of our own sin and our own weakness, which in the, on one hand isn't a, isn't a bad thing. But we're so aware of it that while we believe that Jesus can save us, we believe it, we're still really nervous about judgment day. So we worry about standing before God and what he's going to say to us. It ought to be encouraging to you to see that these disciples who failed again and again and again, Jesus could still stand before the Father and say, they have kept your word. They have kept your word. So what does he pray for for them, and therefore what does he want for us? Two things. He prays to keep them safe and to make them whole. By the way, if you are trying to figure out, how do I pray for my friends? If you're tired of just saying, Lord, bless Joe, bless Mary, and you want to get more specific, this is not a bad model. Do that. <clears throat> keep them safe and make them whole. So let's talk about keep them safe, because it's not what you think it means. Verse 9, he says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, 
that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And I just need to say, when I started and said, Jesus prays that God would keep them safe, our immediate assumption is, safe means nobody will harm them. They won't be arrested, they won't be beaten, they won't be persecuted, they won't be martyred. And yet, if that's what Jesus meant, then his prayer failed. It failed spectacularly, because... Tradition, at least, says 10 out of these 11 men martyred, were martyred for their faith. As, along with hundreds, maybe thousands of other believers those first couple centuries. And we know that's not what Jesus was saying. We know that's not what he was praying when he says, keep them safe. He doesn't mean, don't let anything bad happen to them. Jesus knows, and he's already told them over and over again, most recently in John 16, in this world you will have tribulation. There's a promise you probably don't have on a coffee cup. In this world, you will have tribulation. So Jesus knows that suffering is part of life for everybody, for the rich and the poor, for the, the good and the evil. Everybody experiences pain at times. So that's not what he's saying. Instead, he is praying for protection from something even worse than bad health, than losing your job, than dying young, than suffering the grief of, of losing loved ones. He's praying for protection from falling away. I know this because of what he says in verse 12. He says, none of them has left me. None of them has been lost except the son of destruction. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Judas. Okay, I lost one, but we knew that was going to happen. These other 12, these other 11 have stayed with me, and I'm praying that they would stay the course, that they would finish their race, that they would not fall away. So, specifically, what does he ask protection from? First of all, he asks protection from the world. From the world. Now, I just referenced it a minute ago. Some of you probably already knew this, probably most of you knew this. The first three centuries of Christian history, Periodically, not all the time, but periodically, they would suffer intense persecution. Intense, as in, if you were a Christian, your worship was underground, literally. They, they would worship in Rome in the catacombs underneath, underneath the streets, or in a house. They would go and worship at someone's house, but you didn't tell anybody where you were going. You didn't invite your non-Christian neighbors to church because if you did, they might turn you in and you might all die. I mean, that's the way it was at times. They were thrown to lions. They were killed by gladiators. They were burned at the stake. And they were killed in various other creative ways. Now, I said that was periodic. Rome would just every, every so often decide, oh, it's time to, time to thin out those Christians. Most of the time, they were just sort of low-level persecution. They were ridiculed. They were looked down upon. They were seen as the lowest of society. So it was never easy those first three centuries to be a Christian, and sometimes it was downright dead. And it's ironic because you would think they would be the kinds of people you'd want more of in your empire. They were nonviolent. 
The early Christians, those first three centuries, the Christians did not keep weapons in their homes. They did not engage in violence. They were the last group in the Roman Empire that would ever think of starting a revolt. They were compassionate. The early Christians were the ones who took care of the poor, not just Christian poor, but any poor, took care of widows, adopted little baby girls that had been left to die because the families didn't want another daughter. I mean, they did so much good. And yet... And they, they paid their taxes, they did everything that a good Roman should do, but they didn't worship the gods. And most of all, they didn't worship Caesar. And so the Romans would come up with all kinds of charges against them. We found uh, literature from the time, from Roman authors, that accused them of cannibalism. Christians were cannibals, because I've heard they eat some man's flesh and drink his blood in their services. And they, they were accused of incest because they called each other brother and sister. They were accused of turning the world upside down. Most of all, they were accused of displeasing or even destroying the gods. Remember the, uh, the book of Acts, the, the riot that happened in Ephesus. Why? Because the pagans were upset that fewer and fewer people were worshipping their goddess Artemis. They were all becoming Christians. And it became an economic threat. You know, you, you'd think, well, who cares? A goddess can take care of herself. They were worried, the people who earned their living from the worship of Artemis were worried that they would go out of business. Nobody's buying our little shrines anymore. Nobody's, nobody's coming and, and buying sandwiches on their way into the temple. And there was a riot. These kinds of things happened. Now, on the other hand, in the Jewish world, they were accused of blasphemy. They were accused of treason against their people, of not, not following the law of Moses. They were accused of being un-Jewish. And, of course, mixing Jew and Gentile. So, Christians had it hard. Jesus knows this is going to happen. It hasn't happened yet, but it's going to. And so he's praying that with all this pressure, that we would stand strong. That we would not give up, that we would not turn away, that we would not even be of two minds where we have our public face that's sort of secular and non-religious, but then our Sunday face where we worship God with all our hearts, but that we would be consistent. Now, verse 15, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. See, what he's saying there is the answer is not withdrawal. The answer to this problem, this has always been a temptation for Christians. Going back all the way to the days when Christians were running away into the desert to start monasteries. And even to today, when Christians want to start their own everything. So, I want to, go to, I want to shop for groceries at a Christian grocery store. I want, to, I want to listen to nothing but Christian music and watch nothing but Christian entertainment and never have to interact with the, the people of the world. But... I don't think that's what God intended. We're supposed to be in this world, just not of it. Because he says in John 17, 21, which we'll look at next week, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus is not saying the world is the enemy and, and we're the good guys. He's saying we need to win the world. They need to come to know me. But I just don't want my people be drawn aside by them 
but it's said to be an influence on them towards salvation. That is, that is still true today. Even though we live in a country where we don't face anything anywhere near persecution, and probably won't in our lifetime, unless something drastically changes. Even in our country, though, even in our kind of culture, we realize there is a pressure from the world to conform. And it's kind of complicated, isn't it, to live as a Christian today and, and decide in your mind, okay, what does it mean to be faithful because my parents didn't have some of the same choices that I'm facing. And now my kids and grandkids, they're facing things I never had to face. It gets complicated with each generation. How do you walk the path of Christ while loving the people of this world but not loving the world? That's a hard walk. And that's what Jesus is praying for here. He also prays that they would be protected from division, as he says in verse 11, that they may be one even as we are one. Now that's a beautiful, beautiful thought, and, and we're going to talk more about that idea next week. It's going to be the main thing he prays about. But think about what he's saying. We talked about it last week, how God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, within that Godhead, have, have had a, an everlasting love that was perfectly fulfilling. And now he says, I want them to love each other like we do. And if you think about it, you probably think, boy, he must be really disappointed. Not just because we fuss and fight within churches, but think about all the fighting amongst churches. And unlike some people, it's not so much that we have so many different denominations. I don't think that's the biggest issue, because frankly, God has used that. There are people that a black church can reach that our church won't reach, or a Pentecostal church, or a Catholic church, or, a, or an Episcopal church, or a Methodist church. There are, there are different kinds of people, and they're drawn to different styles of worship, different ways of doing things. And I think God's used that to his advantage in the kingdom of God. The problem is when we don't love each other, and the world sees that. See, we used to say... You know, we should be unified because God loves it when his children get along together, and that's still true. But these days, it's becoming more and more a matter of survival. If we want Christianity to thrive in a society that is less and less hospitable towards Christian faith, then we need to stick together. <clears throat> I think the days when we could argue and fight between churches because you have this confession while I have this confession because you do this kind of baptism and we do that kind of baptism. I'm not saying those things don't matter, but the days when we could act like they're heretics because they're baptized their infants or because uh, they have a different belief about the Lord's Supper, I think those days have come and gone. And we need to recognize that if they preach Jesus crucified and resurrected as the only way to salvation, we need to treat them as brothers because there are getting to be fewer and fewer of us. It's sort of like if you think about the history of this country and the stories of the settlers on the frontier. You know, when you moved out to the frontier and say you grew up in Boston or, or Washington or, or some city on the east and you went out to Oklahoma and you staked your claim out on the prairie and then there's seven or eight other families within a couple, of, uh, couple hundred yards of you or, or a few hundred yards of you you know, old Fred may have bad breath, but you still considered him a friend because if the, the savages came, you needed his rifle, right? 
And Mary, you're going to need her to doctor your son when he falls out of the tree because you don't know how to sew up those kinds of wounds. I mean, you overlooked petty differences because you needed each other. I think that's where we're getting to as Christians today, or at least we should. It does make me sad. This is why I should just stay off of social media. But when I see Christians online tearing each other apart over little things, it makes me sad what has happened to the United Methodist Church. Not that I don't think they have some serious issues that need to be dealt with. Not that I'm criticizing any church that left that denomination over those issues. I'm just saying they ought to have been able to work that out without making one more division in the kingdom of God. It makes me sad when we as Baptists act like we've acted so many times down through the years and fuss and fight over things that aren't central to the gospel. Amen. Jesus prayed against that, prayed against that division because we need each other. And then third, he prayed that we'd be safe from the evil one. That's the last thing he says in verse 15. Keep them from the evil one. And, and this is one of many, many, many passages in the New Testament that tell us that Christian life, while it is a joyful walk, it is also a war. <laughs> it is a war. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but we are at war, not with people of other faiths, not with non-Christians. <clears throat> We're at war with the unseen forces of wickedness, as Paul calls them in Ephesians 6. The devil is doing whatever he can to stop as many people as possible from getting salvation. And if he can't stop you from getting salvation, he's going to do everything possible to keep you from living the abundant life that draws other people to salvation. That is his goal. Jesus said to Peter, and we're going to talk about it soon, you know, in just a few hours, he'll say to him, Satan has asked permission to sift you like me. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. What is he saying? He's saying, the devil is going to come after you tonight, and I'm praying that you will stand the test. It's exactly what he's talking about in this prayer. Keep them from the evil. The devil exists. The forces of evil exist. There's only so much they can do to us, but the Lord wants us to resist even that. We need to watch out for this. Later on, Peter would write in his first letter, in First Peter, our enemy the devil prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So if you think that, uh, and I don't think any of you do, but if anyone thinks that all this talk of devil and demons and, and, and spiritual warfare is just hooey, it, it's, it's you know, primitive uh, mythology that we don't believe anymore, you're not reading the same New Testament I am. That doesn't mean that we live in fear. That doesn't mean that we walk around trying to cast demons out of every rock. I think there, there's a branch of Christianity that takes this way too far and gives the devil too much credit. And the truth is, what you need is not to focus on what he's doing, but to keep walking in the path of Christ. He'll take care of it. But be aware, this does exist. Pray for protection. From the evil one. That's what Jesus prays. And then he prays not just that they would be saved, but that they would be holy. And this is the last part of, or this is the last part we're going to look at. Verse 16. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 
As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. So, where do I get make them holy? The word sanctify. It's not a word we use much anymore. Uh, if you, you're not familiar with it, you may think it's the process of taking you know, caffeine out of coffee, right? Uh, but it's, it's actually, it's a word that means to set apart. So, in a practical sense, uh, back in the days when the temple still existed, if you took an ordinary chair and put it in the temple, it would be sanctified. Why? Because it was now a chair that was used for a separate purpose. It was holy in the sense that it was set apart. Unlike other chairs, it was where you sat to watch the sacrifice or whatever. So what does that mean for people? A holy person, this is what people miss, a holy person is not a person who is perfect, because that doesn't exist except one. A holy person is not a perfect person. A holy person is a person who has set their life apart and has said, I want to live differently. I want to be distinct from the world and distinct in a certain way. Okay, so here's one way to look at it. This is my definition, but I think it's biblical. A holy person sets themselves apart in two ways, okay? Number one, they have an overarching goal. Number two, they have a holy community that they're part of. So let's talk about those. If you're holy, that means you have one overarching goal, and that is to be like Jesus, to become like Christ, to please God by living the way that his son lived. Now, is that something that anybody can do? No, that's something none of us can perfectly do yet, but we should be striving for that goal. If you're striving for that goal, even though you're not there yet, then you're living a holy life. So, uh, you might say, well, does that mean that I have to just kind of wear sackcloth and shave my head and walk around chanting psalms all the time? No, I don't think so. I, I don't see that Jesus lived that way or the apostles. I, I look at it this way. If you went to college, or if not college, think about high school. You knew there were kids, there were students that were serious. They were there to get an education. They were there, they were determined to be on Dean's List every semester. Uh, and they, they just, they were uncompromising. And then there were the other students that, well, their grades were sort of incidental. They might study really, really hard if they thought, well, if I don't make a certain grade on this test, I'm gonna fail, I'll have to take this class again, or even worse, I might lose my scholarship, mom, dad, may, I may even go home, I have to work at the gas station. They might get serious in those moments, but for the rest of the time, education was not their top priority. We all know, I mean, some of you may have been that way. I don't, I, I don't want to speculate, but it may have happened. But these other students that were intent on excellence, did they also go to movies? Did they also go out and get ice cream? Did they also go to parties? Did they also go to ball games? Yeah. Did they go out on dates? Yeah. But not if it interfered with their education. So, you know, you talk to, to Jude or Larry and say, hey, you know, we're all going to get together and, and watch the basketball game, and then afterwards we're going we're gonna to go eat ice cream, and, and then we're going to play cards until about 4 in the morning. And everybody's in on it. So Larry and Jude might say, yeah, but i got a testimony. Ah, just wait a minute. You'll be fine. You always study. You'll be fine. Nope. i got to study. I'll, I'll come watch the first half of the game, and then I'm, i got to go. And they do. Why? 
because they have one overarching goal. They, they can do other things. They can have fun, but not if it gets in the way of them accomplishing their goal. That's what a holy life looks like. A holy life is one where anything that gets in the way of us becoming more like Jesus has to go, has to be pulled out. And everything we do feeds into that ultimate goal of becoming like Christ. Even those other interests. You fall in love with somebody and your goal is to be holy, you're going to treat that person differently than someone who has a different goal in life. Your love of Christ, your desire to be like Christ, is going to change the way you respond to your future spouse, to kids that you have, the way you do your job, and so forth and so on. So that's one half of what it means to live a holy life, is to have that one overarching goal, to be like Jesus, and secondly, to be part of a holy community, the local church. And I say that because we live in such an individualistic time. We've been told from, from birth, you just need Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, which I'm not trying to start any fights, but you won't find that phrase in the Bible. I'm not saying it's wrong to say, because Jesus is your personal Lord and Savior, but when you read the New Testament, this idea that it's just you and Jesus, and he saves your soul, and your relationship with him is all that matters, that's nowhere found in the New Testament. Instead, when you get saved, you become part of the body of Christ. And there's no growth apart from the body of Christ. So, for instance, as Jesus is giving these instructions to the eleven, He's not telling them, so when I'm gone, y'all each go your separate ways. You know, Matthew, you go out into the desert, and uh, uh, Bartholomew, you go up into the hills of Mount uh, of Galilee, and, and Peter and, and Andrew, y'all can go back to the Sea of Galilee and go fishing. And, no, they're supposed to stay together, because they're supposed to be starting a movement, a church, and they do. And when I say uh, a holy community, I don't just mean that any gathering of believers is what we're talking about. I, I mean that we as Christians, just like we're striving individually to become like Jesus, we ought to be striving to make our churches more like Jesus. We ought to be praying for revival in our churches. I, for some reason, this story came back to me. Um, at my previous church, we had a man join, and he'd been raised a Christian, he'd gone to church his whole life, and then got saved as a middle-aged man. Just one of those people who thought he was saved and then all of a sudden he really heard the gospel and it changed his life. And then shortly after that, he and his girlfriend, soon to be wife, joined our church. And I got to marry them and, and they were great. Well, a couple of years into being part of this church, not, not First Baptist, but my previous church, he took me aside and he said something that first kind of made me mad and then I... I realized what he was saying. He said, what's wrong with this church? He said, I go to church and, and we sing songs about Jesus and we preach about him, but then walking out of the church, we don't talk about him anymore. I go to Sunday school and, and we study a Bible lesson, but you know, before it starts and after it ends, we're talking about the ball game or we're talking about politics or we're talking about the weather. We're talking about the news. He said, why aren't people excited about Jesus? And I, at first I was thinking, oh, come on, Brad. Be easier on your church family. Come on. And then I realized what was happening. This was a new believer. He was excited about following Christ. He was in a church full of a lot of really, really good people who had sort of lost lives. He loved Jesus, but 
you know, that wasn't something they thought about all the time. And it bothered to him. He looked at that and said, well, the longer you've been a Christian, the more excited you ought to be. The more of Jesus you ought to know by now, and the closer you're getting to the end of the race. And you, but he didn't see that. And I think, as much as we don't like it, sometimes we need people like that in our midst kind of clap their hands and say, hey, come on, what's wrong with you people? Why are you complaining about this and that? Why are you, why are you distracted by those things? Don't you understand what we're here to do? We as, as, as God's people ought to be constantly hoping, pushing, leading our church to be more holy, to be what it ought to be. And that's not just my job. It is my job, but it's not just mine. So ask yourself, just look at us as a community, as First Baptist. In what ways are we distinct? If holiness is to be set apart, how are we different than our neighbors? Because I'm afraid if we if you start asking us, well, what is it that makes you distinct? We'd say, well, I've got these values, and I, I, I believe in, in traditional morals. Well, yeah, most of our neighbors do. I love my family. I love my spouse. I love my kids. Well, I think they do too. Well, we're really hard workers. We, we do things the right way. We built a stable life. We're good citizens. Yeah. Does that make us different? None of those really. When you think about the culture of Montgomery County, Texas, those aren't Christian values. That's Montgomery County values, right? That's why people are moving out here. So that doesn't make us distinct. Revival is when we become distinct in ways that are like Jesus. In ways that our neighbors look at and say, what got into that? That's what we should be praying for. That's what revival looks like. So how do we get there? How do we, how do we individually and how do we as a church become holy? Jesus talks about it in his prayer. I think it, it comes down to two things. It comes to truth and grace. In verse 17, he says, sanctify them in the truth. The end of that verse in verse 17 says that they may be sanctified in truth. And we know what the truth is. The truth is Jesus and his word. And so that means we continually expose ourselves to the truth of God's word. I, I am unapologetic that everything we do as a church is going to have the word of God at the center of it. Uh, I don't. I don't mean to say that Baptists are any more righteous or legitimate than dozens of other denominations. Jesus makes that decision, but I believe with all my heart that if we continue to base our gatherings on preaching the word, teaching the word, <coughs> singing the word, that we're on the right track. But it's not just teaching, preaching, singing. We have to hear it and repent. That's what needs to be sanctified of the truth. You can know stuff. Okay, so, funny story, funny slash sad story. When uh, Carrie and I were dating, we went and visited my, my family one weekend, and my brother was there with his girlfriend. Not the girl he grew up with, Mary, I want that to be on the record. But uh, for some reason, he, you know, we were talking about playing a game, and, and my brother said, well, you know, here's Bible trivia, why don't we play that? I don't know if he was teasing or what, but we said, okay. And his girlfriend was raised in church, a different kind of church, 
And we quickly found out she didn't know the Bible at all. At all. To the point where Gary and I felt so sorry for her, we would look at the questions on the card and say, let's make up one that's easy. But she couldn't make up, she couldn't answer our made up ones, right? And I, I felt terrible for her. She was embarrassed. I'm sure she was. She gave my brother an earful later. <laughs> but you know what? The fact that we could win Bible trivia on its own didn't make us one bit more righteous than her. I hope y'all know that. Because righteousness comes when you hear the word and repent. Boy, it is sure easy to know stuff and not repent. And in fact, to get proud of all the stuff you know. So truth is how you become holy, but also grace. Where do I get grace from? Verse 19, when he says, For their sake I consecrate myself, which is another way of saying sanctify. Which is kind of an interesting thing for Jesus to say. I made myself holy. Well, how can that be since Jesus is the only person who's been holy from the beginning, who has never sinned. What is he talking about? So, originally the word sanctified meant to cut off. So in the sense of, I'm, I'm cutting this off from the rest. I'm setting it apart from being holy. Jesus is saying, I'm going to be cut off from the Lord, Father, sanctify me. Set me apart. Send me to my death. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I'm going to be cut off for their sake so they can be holy. That's grace. Any holiness we get, it comes from Him. It comes from what He did for us on the cross. So, in order to be one holy, you need both truth and grace. You've got to do your part by hearing the word and repenting. And then the Lord does His part by pouring out His grace upon you through His bloodshed on the cross. And that's how we become holy. I want to take you back to verse 13, where Jesus said, These things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And I highlight that for anybody who thinks that all this talk of holiness and protection makes Christianity sound pretty dour and depressing. Uh, there's some old unbeliever a long time ago who said the problem with Christians is they're always mad because they think someone somewhere is having fun. <laughs> And I know some Christians who kind of seem that way. But that's not what God intended. If you're really living a truly holy life, you'll have more joy than anybody else you know. That they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So all that to say, until kids realize that their parents are just out for their own good, they'll always clash. They'll always clash. They'll always be figuring out, how can I get mom and dad to give me what I want, to, to let me do what I want? Instead of saying, how can I figure out the stuff that's in mom and dad's head so I can work alongside them, so we can, together, get me ready for life? I know I'm dreaming. That's never going to happen. But it should happen for us as Christians in our relationship with God. We should get to the point where we say, getting to God is the only worthy goal. Instead of trying to use God to give me the things I want, our goal should be, Lord, Give me these things that my heart desires if it falls into your will, if it doesn't get in the way, but what I really want is you. And when we reach that point, we're working alongside him instead of fighting against him. Life just starts to make so much more sense. 
That's what Jesus prayed for his disciples. And based on the way those 11 men lived, it worked. And that's his desire for us too. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful that in your hour of need, your hour of desperation, you were thinking of others. Lord, I pray that we would be safe within your arms, that we would be safe from the world, from division among ourselves, from the evil one who desires to devour us, draw us away from you. Lord, I pray also that we would live lives of holiness and joy that make you proud and that draw others to you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.